Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Proverbs, chapter 22. Proverbs chapter 22. And this morning we're going to look at verse 29. Proverbs 22, 29. Proverbs 22, 29 reads this way in the New American Standard Bible. Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Please note that it's not necessarily the talented person who will stand before kings rather than before obscure men. It is the skilled person. Many times it's not the fastest, the strongest, the most beautiful, the most intelligent who stand before the king. But it is the person who is skilled. I think of a man by the name of Raymond Berry, a name that is familiar to a few in the room. Raymond Berry is a favorite son of the state of Texas. He grew up in a coach's home, football coach to be exact. He played for his father, but he never got to start until he was a senior in high school. It could have been because his father did not want to show favor to his son. But nevertheless, he, senior year, he started every game. And he did well enough to draw the attention of college football scouts. He received a full scholarship to Southern Methodist University. He went there, played there for four years, and he caught a whopping 33 passes as a wide receiver. I don't even think they had the term wide receiver. In his day, there were ends. Do any of you remember when there were no such things as wide receivers? There were just ends. Well, he caught 33 passes. Not necessarily the most distinguished career as a receiver at any college in that day. But he drew the attention also at that point of NFL teams. He was signed with the Baltimore Colts. And over the course of the next 13 seasons, Raymond Berry, who was nearsighted, who had one leg shorter than the other leg, consequently he was slow afoot, this young man went to the NFL and he amassed 9,275 yards, catching the football 631 times. Most of those throws came from Johnny Unitas. And he went on to be inducted in the NFL Hall of Fame. Afterwards, in his after-NFL life, he was a coach. He was the head coach of the New England Patriots. They were probably called the Boston Patriots at that time. And he took them to a Super Bowl. And if memory serves me correctly, it was not a very special moment in his life. His team got really whomped up on by the 49ers, if I remember correctly. But that's another story in and of itself. But the point is, here was a man who was on paper and to the vis visible eye just sort of an average person. But he worked and he worked and he worked. He honed whatever talent God gave him, and he worked it and worked it and worked it. And by the way, he is a devout follower of Jesus Christ. He's alive today at the age of 83 and still loves the Lord from every report. As we read about David from Psalm 78, did that sink in to you a little bit as to what it says? 
the scripture says, God also chose David, his servant, and he picked him out of the sheepfolds. And he gave him the responsibility to shepherd his people Israel. And then listen to the last part, the last verse of Psalm 78. The 72nd verse says this, And he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart, and he guided them with skillful hands. Now David was a young man, you may recall, who was sort of an afterthought as far as his father Jesse was concerned. He was his eighth son. You will probably remember that Samuel, who was the prophet of Israel, he was the last in a long line of judges in Israel, he was the one whom God had told to go and anoint Saul, who was head taller than anybody in all of Israel, to be king. And Saul, quite frankly, was a train wreck. He was a disaster as far as a leader was concerned. So the scripture says that God regretted having appointed Saul king. And so he says to Samuel the prophet, Hey, I want you to go with a jug of oil to the household of Jesse in Bethlehem and there anoint one of his sons. I'm not going to tell you right now which one it will be, but you anoint one of his sons to be the successor to this man, Saul. In fact, this is the way God described David without Samuel even knowing who David was at the moment. He said, I have chosen a king for myself from the family of Jesse. So he went there. He carried a heifer with him according to the order of the Lord. He offered sacrifice there. He called all the leaders of the village of Bethlehem, included was Jesse. And then after the sacrifice had been made, he said to Jesse, bring all your sons to me. And Jesse in good Jewish fashion, brought his first son before him. His name was Eliab. And Eliab, the scripture says, was a handsome man. He was good to look at. And he was a man of stature. He was tall. Everything that one would think would be necessary, at least outwardly, to be a successful leader. And the Spirit of God said to the prophet, he's not the one. And then, so, Samuel said to Jesse, Bring your second son. Abinadab came. He's not the one. Then he said, bring the third son. Shema came. Shema was not the one. And then he brought the other four whose names are not mentioned in the scripture. And no, 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 no. Four more no's. And you recall, Samuel said, do you have another son by chance? He said, to him, that is Jesse, said, oh yes, but he's just a shepherd boy. He's out taking care of the flock. And what did the prophet say? Have him to come in. And when he came in, the Spirit of God said, he's the one. He had been out there taking care of the sheep of his father, and it was there that he developed some very significant skills. He was very talented to begin with, with regard to eye-hand coordination. Today he would have been a great athlete if he had lived in our day. And he was an athlete in his day. His athleticism, however, exhibited itself a little differently. He didn't play any games. He was playing for keeps. He was the keeper of his father's sheep. 
And therefore, he learned how to take stones, put them in a sling, and I'm sure he practiced over and over again while he was watching his father's sheep as to how to use that sling and throw it. And he used it to ward off those who would try to kill or wrestle, wrestle rather, some of the sheep. He was a man who had developed those skills. And you know, he was not simply an athlete. He, he had great dexterity, eye-hand coordination, but dexterity with his fingers because we know there came a time when Saul, whom he was going to succeed, Saul was having a bad time, probably either demon-possessed or severely mentally ill. And he would go into these funks. And so the ones who took care of Saul said, let's get somebody who can play the harp and maybe the music will soothe the king. And it was David who fulfilled that responsibility. And he had such great dexterity and musical ability. He was a lyricist. We know that. Why? We know that because so many of the Psalms were written by him. We know the Spirit of God gave him those words, but he was able to do that. So he was what we would call today a Renaissance man. Was He was a warrior poet. But before that, he was a young man who really did what he did without people seeing it. And by the way, if I may, let me refer back to that last verse in Psalm 78. He shepherded them, that is Israel, the people of God. He shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart. Now stop here just a moment. Before I go any further, let me be clear, lest you think I'm touting just talent that's honed and sharpened into skill. Let me make it clear, because God's Word makes it clear. Integrity of heart is more important than any skill you might develop. Because if God is not at the center of your desire to develop your skill, then it will only serve to elevate you and to obscure God. David was a man after God's own heart, wasn't he? I love what Frank Gabeline, the founder of the Stony Brook School on Long Island, it was a school which was founded to prepare young Christian men for the Ivy League. It was a prep school, as they're called. And many young men came out of that school and went on to Ivy League schools and became leaders in our nation. The school still exists. It's co-educational now. But when he was thinking about the motto for the Stony Brook School, it was a simple motto, three words, character before career. Now, most of us are far into our careers. But what we need to understand, character is never out of vogue. Character is critically important. And more importantly, the character of Jesus Christ living in us by the Spirit of God. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. This is what we should hope for and pray for and trust God for as we submit ourselves to the Lord. But David says to the Lord, as he concludes Psalm 143, one of my favorite of his writings, he simply makes this statement, I am your servant. As we read from Psalm 78, the writer of Psalm 78, not David, says this about David, 
speaking on behalf of God. I also have chosen David, my servant. So really, if you have any talent, you and I, whatever talent we have, we all have some talent, we are to develop it under the auspices of God and understanding that we serve Him. Can there be anything more dignifying than to be the servant of the king of the universe? Is there anything more significant that could be said about you and me than to be his servant? Absolutely not. So we see David, who took what talent God had given him, and he developed it in such a way as to honor the Lord. Our verse of Scripture says in Proverbs 22, 29, do you see a man skilled in his work? The question would be, what kind of work is that? Well, if you know Christ, your work, as long as it's ethical, it's honest work, as long as it's a work that's designed to help people in some way, your work is the Lord's work. I hope you understand this. Now, how can I make such a claim? Here's the basis of such a claim. The Bible says in the book of Colossians chapter 3 that whatever you do, do it in the name of Christ. And what that simply means is do it in such a way that will be representative of the person of Christ. It won't obscure Christ. Jesus will be the center of it. And it will be in a way that Jesus Christ himself would do that work. Whatever your job is, whatever your work is in this world, it has the possibility, and actually it should have as its goal, to be that kind of person, to get skilled to the capacity that you're able to become skilled, to get skilled, and never quit working on getting more skilled, by the way. It's not like you graduate from school or you uh, develop a certain level of skill and you just let it ride until the end. That's a good way to have a quick demise in terms of your being used by the Lord. God has given you a skill to exercise after having developed it. And the purpose is your skill will be the platform from which God will reveal himself to other people. More about that later. I think about... Exodus 36 and 1 and following. I wish we had time to look at it in detail. But it talks about two men, Bezalel and Aholiab. Now, how many of you think a lot about Bezalel and Aholiab? Well, if you were of the Jewish religion, you would probably know more about them than you know now. But these two men were designated by God and appointed through Moses to oversee the building of the tabernacle. How important was the tabernacle to the people of God? It was the place where the Ark of the Covenant resided. And Bezalel and Oholiab didn't even have the Ark of the Covenant. God gave it to them conceptually, and they took their great skill. And the Bible talks about they had skills, and then there were many other people among the people of God who had various skills which were used, for instance, to make the curtains and make all the gold work and the poles to set the tabernacle on 
I mean, it's just amazing when you read that story beginning in Exodus 36. These were people who had skill and they served it. They weren't preachers. They weren't missionaries. They were people who had skills who worked on the tabernacle. And what does the tabernacle represent, by the way, today? It it represents us, the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ. That's what it represents. And it Jesus himself is described this way by John. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now the word dwelt there in John 1.14 is the word tabernacled. He set up his tent. Jesus is a picture of the tabernacle. God himself in the person of Jesus Christ and the body of Christ, we comprise that body. So I hope you understand. When we gather here together, we have gifts and we're to exercise our gifts. But when we go out in the world, the church gathered once a week for the purpose of worshiping the Lord, for the purpose of encouraging one another. I've been reminded recently because of all the problems that we face in this nation and in this world. The, the Bible says in Hebrews 10.25, Do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. And also encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. What day is that referring to? The day of the Lord. It's upon us. It's approaching. And as it moves ever closer, it's all the more important that we who know Jesus Christ meet together for the purposes of encouragement. We can all encourage one another when we gather together. But look, the church is not to be like a little holy huddle that just sort of shivers in a corner hoping that nobody's going to know who we are or what we believe. It's a church that's scattered. Isn't that awesome? There is scattering every week as you go out into your homes, into your community, into your workplace to serve the Lord. It's there that you let your light shine in such a way that you do good works that bring glory and honor to the Lord through your work. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whatever you do, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Would that include your work? Well, that's where you spend a lion's share of your time probably, isn't it? And so we're to look at it that way. Do you understand that you and I have this splendid opportunity to do this kind of work? Jesus says in John 9 verse 4, he says, let us do the work of God while it is day. Night is coming when no person can work. But let us do the work of him who sent me while it is day. And that work is teamwork. Let us, Jesus says, we team up with Jesus. We yoke up with Jesus and we yoke up with one another to do this work of bringing glory and honor to the Lord through whatever means God has given us connected to our talents and our skills that we develop. We're to develop our skills. Jesus says to a group of people who come to him asking him, Master, what must we do to do the work of God? And then Jesus says, this is the work of God. That 
you believe in him whom he has sent. That you believe in me. That you have faith. And this is the M.O. of people who understand this passage that we're looking at today. They are men and women who walk by faith in dependence upon the Lord. They take Jesus seriously when he says in John 15, 5, apart from me you can do nothing. Do you believe that? That's what Christ says. And it's true when it comes to your work as well. The Bible says whatever is not of faith is sin. Why do you suppose the Lord would let skilled people stand before kings? Well, it would not be for their own personal recognition. Most people want to get more skilled so that they can rise in prominence in the eyes of other men and women. But from God's perspective, God says, do you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them. This is what he said to Baruch, the understudy of Jeremiah the prophet. Don't go for personal aggrandizement. Don't go for making a name for yourself. Don't seek those things. Some of you know the name Ben Scully. For 67 years, he was the voice of the Los Angeles Dodgers. He just retired at the end of the season at the age of 87. He'll be 88 next month. I know quite a bit about him. I'm going to give an illustration from his life in just a moment. There's one whom I do not know as much about. His name is Ernie Harwell. Some of you know about Ernie Harwell. He was to the Detroit Tigers what Vin Scully was to the Los Angeles Dodgers for many years. He was born and raised in rural Georgia. He went to college in Atlanta at Emory University, distinguished himself there, got a degree, got a job as a newsman, sports writer for the Atlanta Constitution. Then he went on to a career as a sportscaster. As he was dying from cancer at the age of 91, there was a desire to give him an audience to speak to people about the things that really mattered in life. The Fox Theater in Detroit was rented and it was sold out. He was helped by Mitch Album. Some of you know Mitch Album, a sports writer himself, a journalist. And as Mitch Album took him on the stage and people were listening with rapt attention after they'd given him a standing ovation when he arrived there, he began to tell some anecdotes about his life, humorous and full of wisdom at the same time. And then... According to Mitch Album, he spoke about an unexpected subject, his ambition. He admitted early on in his life he wanted success, fame, and he chased fame from a small newspaper to a major league broadcast booth. But listen to what he said. At the age of 43, this is what he said, he had reached the pinnacle of his profession, and he was skilled, believe me. He worked it and worked it and worked it. But this is what he said. But none of these things fulfill me. One night in 1961 in Florida, I attended a Billy Graham service. And there I gave my life to Jesus. I didn't announce it on the radio. But what I did do is live that life of service to the Lord. He said... I don't have many days left, I don't guess. 
But I praise God because he's given me this time. I can really know whose arms I'm going to end up in and what a great, great thing heaven is going to be. The next year at the age of 92, he passed away. Went to be with the Lord in the year 2010. Here's a man who, for the most of his early life, what did he want? He wanted attention. He wanted his own fame. He wanted recognition. But he came to know Christ and all of that changed. He understood what the prophet says in Jeremiah chapter 9. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches. But let, let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. Why would Ernie Harwell, or anyone else for that matter, who is gifted, talented, disciplined enough to develop the skills to the level that he developed those skills. And he, by the way, did stand in the presence of people equivalent to kings. People listened to him. He was the most popular person in the entire state of Michigan when he died. Amazing. A little country boy from South Georgia. Amazing. So the Lord would let skilled people stand before kings, not for personal recognition, but to tell other people about him, about Jesus, right? That's it. And you don't have to get on a platform somewhere or on your soapbox to tell people about Christ. You just follow the Lord and develop that skill, and people are going to want to know why you are who you are. What is the motivating force behind you? And they will recognize in you a quality of character that is not common among people who don't know Christ. It's what we call humility. And that was one of the characteristics that Mitch Album, who is not a follower of Christ, a man of faith but not of the Christian faith, he noted about Harwell. Harwell was a man of incredible humility. And that caused people to want to know. We read about Daniel from Daniel chapter 2. And what we read was that the king of Babylon, the most powerful kingdom in the world and therefore the most powerful king, Nebuchadnezzar, had a dream. And nobody could interpret it. He had this big number. We don't know how many, probably hundreds of magicians and soothsayers and wise men. And he called them all in. He said, tell me what my dream was and then I want you to interpret it. They said, king... Give us a hint. What was your dream? And the king says, I'm not going to do it. You tell me what the dream was, and then you interpret it. And nobody could do it. So he said, okay, I'm going to wipe all of you out. Your none of you is worth a hoot. I'm getting rid of all of you. And word came to Daniel. He was one of those people. And so he got his three good friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and said, look, I've got to go to the king. And I need God's help to interpret this dream. Would you pray while I go? And they agreed to it. He went. And remember what he said as we read it to the king. He said, King, nobody can reveal this dream to you. Nobody can tell you what it means. Only God can. And I'm a dependent upon him. I'm his servant. And so what did he do? He gave the dream. And what happened to this man, Daniel? Daniel, one of the finest examples of a person who developed his skills in all of history. He became second in command, as it were, because he was like the administrator, the COO of the Babylonian Empire. 
And then when Nebuchadnezzar had gone and was succeeded by his son, Daniel continued in that capacity. And then when the Babylonian Empire was overthrown, guess where Daniel found himself? He was in the service of Cyrus and Darius, the leaders of the Medo-Persian Empire, which had replaced the Babylonian Empire. And even, most scholars think, even into his 90s, he was still serving the Lord. But he was a man who gave credit to the Lord in every phase of his life. He witnessed to the Lord. So what does that have to do with us? We may not stand before kings, but we stand before people who want to know about God, whether they are aware of it or not. They're longing for the Lord. And he puts us as his exhibits of what a person like that is. Paul, we don't need to go there very long, but the Apostle Paul, was he a man who was talented? Before he came to Christ, he was at the top of the heap of talent. But then he came to Christ, he was humbled, then he got rebuilt by the Spirit of God, and the ultimate goal of his life was to stand before Caesar Nero. And he got that opportunity at least once. We don't know, maybe more than once. And we know in the book of Acts, he's before kings of different groups. And every time he's before someone of influence, what does he do? Or people that we might not even consider influential, what does he do? He tells the gospel. He tells his story of how Christ came and saved him. He was always on the lookout. Now, let's get practical here for a moment. How do we develop our skills? Well, it doesn't take rocket scientists to figure that out, does it? We have to practice them, don't we? Practice them. It's said that Leonardo da Vinci drew one time in preparation for one of his paintings. He drew the human hand 1,000 times before he felt like he was ready to represent what a real human hand looked like on canvas. A thousand times. Churchill, this great orator, considered by most the greatest orator in the English language, at least in the 20th century. This was a man who was expert at giving what would be called impromptu speeches or extemporaneous speeches, speeches that you weren't aware that you were going to give, and you just give them on the spur of the moment. But he was a man who had a lisp. That's not a well-known fact. He had a lisp. And he was ridiculed in his early life because of his lisp. So he worked to refine, refine his speech. And then so it was told by those who really know that he really practiced hard on his impromptu speeches. He wrote them all out. And on the margins of some of, the, some of these handwritten speeches are these words, cheers, hear, hears, prolonged cheers, standing ovations. <laughs> he was a master at it. He worked at it. And that resulted in his having more impact, his blood, sweat, and tears speech. It really changed, in some people's thinking, the course of the world as he gave it to his people, encouraging them during that difficult time. Pavarotti, this astounds me, this great operatic singer, no longer with us, when he was developing his skills, he spent one half year 
working on how to position his jaw so that he could get the most out of his voice when he sang. I would say, from my point of view, that's overkill. (laughs) But who am I? I don't even know how to read music. I haven't even disciplined myself to that degree. But he did, didn't he? Ernest Hemingway, not necessarily the paragon of virtue, but Ernest Hemingway, when he was nearing really the end of his life, still writing, we know he took his life, tragically. He was an alcoholic, but he would get up every morning, 6.30, from 6.30 until noon. He wouldn't touch a drop. And he stood behind a desk. He refused to even allow himself to sit down in his villa in Cuba. And he would write from 6.30 a.m until noon every day. And he would average only 500 words that were acceptable to him. Those who know said he rewrote A Farewell to Arms, one of his more notable works, 17 times. He revised it 17 times. Sir William Ausler, who was the great physician, who was a teaching physician at Johns Hopkins University, this was a man who worked at his profession. He learned, and he also was a man who was not simply oriented toward working toward his profession of the practice of medicine, but he understood what the writer of Proverbs says, when the writer of the Proverbs says, get wisdom and discipline and understanding. He was a man of wisdom, Sir William was, exhibited in the way in which he would speak to his Residents, when he was taking them on rounds, he would say to them as he would go from one patient to another as they walked from one ward to the other, he would give gems of wisdom, pearls of great price to them. And one of those was, learn to live in daytight compartments, is what he said. One of many things that he learned from the Lord, really, because... He knew the Lord and he trusted the Lord, but he practiced and practiced and practiced in order to be who he became. So it takes practice, doesn't it? Practice your skill. In the book of Philippians 2, the Bible says, Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. We know that's related to our sanctification, our spiritual growth, but let me be clear. Part of my sanctification is what we're talking about here today. Because the word to sanctify means to set apart, particularly for God's use. So we're to set ourselves apart. God has set us apart. Now we're to participate in that. Set ourselves apart. We're to work out our salvation in that way. For it's God who is at work in us. Going back to Vin Scully, I was so touched. It was in September about five weeks ago, probably five weeks ago Friday, I was driving to the far east side of our county and I was listening to sports radio and something good came out of sports radio, believe it or not, because Vin Scully was being interviewed. And as he was being interviewed, he was asked to talk about the things that really surprised him in his life. His biggest surprise or surprises as a sportscaster. And this is what he said. He said, my biggest surprise is that God, was that God 
would pick a boy like me who was bereft of his father at the age of eight and he would put this skill in me and help me to develop this skill over time. And this is what he said. He said, at this point in my life, I need to get on my knees more often and thank God for his grace. Isn't that interesting? He didn't think of himself more highly than he ought. In fact, he, to this day, was a very humble man, much like Ernie Harwell. I'm sure they were friends, brothers in Christ. Listen to what John the Baptist said when he was approached by his disciples, and they were a little upset because Jesus was getting more attention than their rabbi was getting. And the scripture says, you know this, in Matthew 3, before Christ came on the scene, that all of Jerusalem and all of Judea and all the region around Jordan, all those people were coming to hear John the Baptist speak. Hey, he developed his skill. He was out in the wilderness, a weirdo from most people's perspective. He ate wild honey and locusts, had a camel hair garment and a leather belt around his waist. Evidently, that was not the normal kind of attire for people in his day. But he didn't care. He was serving the one true God. And this is what he said to his men. He said, a man can receive nothing unless it's given to him from heaven. So where did his skill come from? It came from the Lord. This is wonderful, isn't it? To think that every man and woman who knows Jesus Christ has been given a talent and a spiritual gift. And what God wants us to do is to Develop, develop, develop. Not for our own personal satisfaction. And you know if you've exercised your talent or your gift with the Lord in mind, hey, there's great joy in that, isn't there? There's great satisfaction in doing what God has created you and me to do and being whom he has created us to be. Incredible satisfaction. But that's secondary to God's getting the glory Paul echoed the same thing in 1 Corinthians 4, 7 when he says, what does a man have that he did not receive? Well, the answer is clear. Nothing. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, he says, my adequacy comes from God. Not from me, but from God. Let me kind of summarize this for a moment. Here are four things you need to discover to discover what your talent is. If you don't know what it is, discover it. Hopefully you know what it is by now. And quit trying to be somebody you're not. God knew what he was doing when he gave you whatever talent or gift you have. He was in charge of that. He's still in charge of that. He has something to do through you using that talent or skill. He has something no one else can do through that. Discover it. And parents... We have some people here who are raising their children still. The Bible says, and we know this in Proverbs 22, 5, I believe it is, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, what will happen? He will not depart from it. The word translated train up, many people have thought, well, that means train them in the word of God, in the way of God. Well, that's part of it, but really when you look at the word more carefully, what you discover is this is a word that's designed to convey to us as parents according to that child's God-given natural bent. So we as parents need to be students of our children. 
what is their talent. And don't try to make them like us. Help them to become whom God developed them from the womb and help them to follow the Lord in that way. So we as parents can help our children beginning from a young age to discover what their skill is. Then devote ourselves to the Lord first. I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable act of worship. We need to devote ourselves to God, and that would include everything about us, including our skills, our gifts, our talents. Thirdly, develop them. We talked about that. And then deploy them in everyday life. Those four Ds, discover them. Devote yourself to the Lord and your gifts and talents. Develop them and deploy them. Now, I don't want to be morbid here, but it's important that I say this. In Acts 13, 36, Luke writes this about David. We've talked a lot about him already today. David, when he had fulfilled the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. We got a window. I mean, mine's, I don't know how much is left. But I'm not lamenting that because I've got today and you do too. Some of you apparently have a big window. But what we need to understand is God has placed us here just as surely as he placed David on the earth. He has placed you and me to serve him. How? To serve him by developing those skills and gifts God has given to us to the point that we could be used by the Lord. Every man and woman in this room, I know I'm sounding like a broken record, but just in case you fell asleep when I said it before, every one of us has been given opportunity and given equipping for this purpose. And we need not miss it. Well, we're all going to stand before a king someday. No ordinary king, by the way. He is the king of kings. And we're going to have to give an answer to him. The Bible says about those of us who know Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, we're going to all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And that's sort of scary to think about, were it not for the fact that Christ has already been condemned for your sins, so you're not going to be punished there. But we will receive recompense. We'll get reward, actually, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ for the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, when Paul is talking about this judgment seat scenario, he talks about how each one of us, our our lives will be evaluated based not on the quantity of output, but on the quality of life. What does that mean? It means that we have been good stewards of the talents and gifts and opportunities which the Lord has given to us. And we would hope that day he would say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's something to look forward to. Have you ever had somebody who was a person 
of significance in your mind come and genuinely commend you for what you have done? Have that ever happened to you? Well, there's coming a day that that will happen to all of us if we do what the Lord tells us to do. First, having been whom he has called us and created us to be. You may not get any attaboys in this life, but at that moment, it'll be worth all the obscurity that you may feel like you have labored in. But realize that you will stand before the King of Kings and you will honor him. And any reward he gives us, this is lovely. What are we going to do with that according to the Bible? We're going to give it right back to him, right? Because that's the way we've lived in this life. It's not about us. It's about him. About the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that is ours to be your children, to be your servants. What a, what a wonderful thing you've done in saving us from our sins, redeeming us, equipping us. And we want to follow you, Lord, with a fuller heart to represent you well to the world. I pray, Lord, for everyone present. When we leave here, we won't forget these things which we have learned today from you through your word, that we would see ourselves as being men and women on mission, that we are salt and light that you have scattered into El Paso and to other areas of the world to help men and women come to know you because they see in us a uniqueness, and that uniqueness is you, Lord. Thank you for indwelling us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.